Hello, I am Waylon Kenning, your strategic advisor, and we're going to be doing a walk and talk, which is pretty much like a podcast, except I'm walking out and about. Now, today's topic I want to talk to you about is going to be trust. Trust on the internet. And really, a little bit of a review of the current state of trust. Now, there are so many people who have been affected by scams on the internet. And, you know, sometimes these scams, they feel remote, they won't happen to you, you're very savvy, you know what the padlock looks like, you've got a password manager, no problems. But honestly, these scams really affect everybody, they've affected my family, they've affected people that I know, and I feel like it's very unfair to say, well actually, you know, it's your fault, it's your responsibility to know what secure looks like. As technology people, technology practitioners, we have designed this system. And by the system, I really mean the internet. In such a way, trust really wasn't fundamental. So I can go to a website, any website, and there really is no indication about whether it's trustworthy or not trustworthy the characteristics that we look for in trust just are easy to be uh, to, to be phony. So when we think of trust in the real world, the thing is, is that these cues of trust are obvious to us. So for instance, if we're dealing with what looks like a bank, then we go to a physical bank. We go to its location. And we look at the signs on the door. It says bank. And the branding looks like a bank. And there are people going into the place. And they're also doing banking. And all these characteristics, these attributes, let us know. This looks like a bank. This is legitimate. Maybe this is a good place for me to put my money. But what does it look like in the digital world? What does a crypto bank look like? The other thing that's a bit of a challenge is that in the physical world, when you go to a building that looks like a bank, it's located physically in the world, the, the world we observe and see, and it's located in a country. As an example, my wife and I, we moved to Canada a few years ago, went to Toronto, and we'd never heard of some of these banks, Royal Bank of Canada, uh, CIBC, uh, Scotiabank, but we knew that they were real banks because we could see many branches, we could see credit cards and debit cards that had been issued by them, and all of these were hints, they were cues to us in the physical world that this thing called CIBC Canadian Imperial Commerce Bank probably was a real bank and if it was phony if someone had created a fake bank then we would be able to say well hold on a second the regulations and laws of this country would spot 
that this is a fake bank and would then shut it down. But online, it does not work the same way. And a lot of people have been affected by uh, crypto scams and sort of phony bank transfers. And so if we think about why that has happened. So we know that this topic of a lack of inherent trust on the internet is affecting us. Then, you know, we can start to say, well, why? Why was the internet built this way? When we transact with the various websites, there are these technological cues around trust. A big one was really the migration from unsecure websites to secure websites. But even then, you're really saying to someone, oh, hey, this website you go to that is HTTP, whatever HTTP means, now is HTTPS, whatever HTTPS means. And once again, this kind of goes back to my original kind of hypothesis that technologists designed this without really saying, actually, is this understandable or useful by normal people? So, you know, the HTTP, the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, has now been migrated towards the Hypertext Transfer Protocol Secure in a web browser like what the hell I don't understand any of this it's confusing to me and even then the next part of what is in the browser you know is is supposed to be I guess something like airnewzealand.co.nz and I think that is what I'm supposed to trust but then when I go to HTTPS colon slash slash Air New Zealand dot trust dot redirect dot hypermedia dot com and then I'm supposed to enter my credit cards I mean the original site looked legitimate and looked secure but now I've been redirected to a different website where I'm supposed to enter my credit card details and I guess that is something lots of websites redirect you to other websites to enter your credit card details and then you're scammed and then you're hacked so in that interaction in that set of um, transactions the conundrum that happened there was that it's hard to know what I'm trusting and that has been really the fundamental challenge of the internet is that I don't really know who I'm interacting with and I don't really know if what I'm giving them is safe and secure and I don't really know if what they're giving me is safe and secure. Now, this conundrum about how I'm interacting with people and can they trust me or not trust me has been 
pretty much solved in in some contexts and a really big context of that is payments so if you think about payments if you think about mastercard or visa card you go to a random country they've never seen you before they uh, you bring your random credit card from new zealand or australia or canada or wherever you happen to be and i turn up to a vendor in Shanghai, China with my KiwiBank credit card. Do they trust KiwiBank? Have they even heard of KiwiBank? No, of course not. But what they might have heard of is MasterCard or Visa. And so my credit card, which is issued to me by my bank, has a little logo on the bottom of it called Visa or MasterCard and another bank that happens to be sitting over in China which could be say uh, HSBC says okay well you want to pay me so, so I might be buying some street food I present my KiwiBank credit card that has the Visa logo on the bottom of it and HSBC says, hello Visa, I'd like to take $100, is that fine? And Visa can say to my bank, which is KiwiBank, hey KiwiBank, I'd like to take $100, is that fine? And my bank says, yeah, no, it's, it's all good. And my bank tells Visa, Visa tells HSBC, and that transaction goes through. So we kind of got... Two parties who didn't really know each other and they relied on some sort of intermediary to say well actually I know you both and to be part of my club which is my payment network I've gone through quite a rigorous process to trust you so then if we kind of think of that model of I had a bit of information which is my payment information I wanted to give it to a third party who didn't know me. I used an intermediary. That's one mechanism of trust. And we kind of see that also in the physical world that we live in today. Not all examples are so fancy. You might be deciding to do a house share and get a flatmate. And you don't know of anybody. So you ask your friends and you say, Hello, do you know of someone who wants to live in a room and they say yeah yeah we know a guy and you don't know that person but you know your friends and your friends know that person and you trust your friend and your friend trusts that person so there's a sort of like implied trust that happens which is really the same as the payment system at a really abstract perspective where you don't necessarily trust the street vendor you might not even trust their bank, but you trust Visa through your bank, and they trust Visa through their bank, so everything's all okay. So at the start of this walk and talk, we went over the topic of scams, and how scams affect people. And really, this is because the internet was created without a foundational layer of trust, I just want to point out that trust isn't really a technological thing. 
So, for instance, you know, with uh, cryptocurrency, a lot of talk about uh, there's sort of technological trust built into it. No one can hack it or double spend it. Um, the, you know, the value is insured. Really, the value that comes from carrying little bits of code, which is essentially what cryptocurrency happens to be, comes from the shared belief of all participants that this thing, this shared token, has some value. So while there is a technological underpinnings around cryptography, uh, making it very difficult for people to um, do some sort of attacks like double spend money or uh, repudiate, pretend like some spending had not happened, there's a technological foundation that says, well actually through mathematics we can prove that a transaction had happened. If we kind of zoom out on that a little bit further, really, it's that you and I and all the participants have trust in this cryptographic foundation that a lot of very smart people and scientists and mathematicians have studied this topic and they say that this is a well-trusted bit of software and we trust those people or we trust our friends who say that those people are smart or we trust people on YouTube or we trust celebrities or we trust engineers or we trust uh, professionals who say that this is all okay. So really at the heart of all of these transactions, whether they be cryptocurrency, whether they just be normal websites, whether they be apps, wherever you are passing information to or getting information from is really based on this foundation of trust. And because that foundation didn't exist from the beginning, a lot of people have exploited that, which is really how scammers have come to be. And their exploitations are kind of a bit like trying to stop people bringing drugs into a country, the people behind it are growing ever more sophisticated. And I would suggest that happens to be the same for scammers as well, who grow ever more sophisticated in their attempts to part you from your money. And some of the ones that I've personally seen have been people who are pretending to do fake DHL deliveries. And they will send you tracking links to fake DHL websites that show you that your package is about to arrive. You just need to pay some money for a customs clearance. There's obviously a lot of scammers that happen to be on romance websites. People pretending to be romantic partners. And... You know, obviously that's heartbreaking because you're really toying with people's emotions there and really preying on people who are susceptible to that kind of attack. Now, these aren't just limited to sort of, you know, elderly folks as well. Another common attack is ones against businesses. 
where a business will get attacked and someone will log in maliciously to their email and will say, hey, that invoice that you need to pay, we've updated our bank account, here's our new bank account number. Now obviously that wasn't real, but the end outcome is that you've just made that $10,000 business transfer to not actually the company you're doing business with, but to a fake company. Maybe to not a company at all. And by the time you figure this out, that money is long gone. At one company I used to work for, scammers would monitor new starters at this particular company on LinkedIn. And then they would send an email to that new starter, which is pretty straightforward because it's always first name dot last name at you know the company's email domain and say hello I'm the CEO and I have an important thing that you need to do please contact me on whatsapp so I can tell you more about it and if you're a new starter to a company how do you know that that's not how the CEO communicates I think my highlight is when scammers contact the CEO um, just because obviously the CEO knows that they're the CEO so when it kind of reaches a sort of like limit of ridiculousness for scammers the fact is this lack of trust everywhere is pervasive on the internet and if you've grown up with the internet if you don't really remember life before it then you may have a healthy dose of skepticism and cynicism about whether anything happens to be particularly real if people reach out to you especially if something you haven't prepared for has come out of the blue so one good example that happened to me once was I published a YouTube video on identity is how to install a particular bit of software did not even have a voiceover and it was very popular over 10,000 views and a book publisher reached out to me and said hello would you like to write a book about this topic on identity and I talked to my wife at the I mean she's still my wife but I, t I talked to my partner and she was deeply suspicious that this was a real publisher that there was real money that this wasn't a scam somehow to part me from my information or from my actual dollars and I thought it all looks real it all looks legit and it was so a long time ago I wrote a book on identity but the fact is is if you get an email out of the blue would you ever trust it these days or would you just put it in the spam folder and say, oh no, actually, I wasn't expecting this. And, you know, that's really another downside to this lack of a trust foundation on the internet. Is that it's not easy for us, and the entire burden is on us, to determine whether something is legitimate or not legitimate. So, a lot of smart folks have been thinking about this topic for a while. In fact, 
if we kind of cast our mind back to the days before the internet, one really good example around how people communicated trust was things like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, Girl Guides. Do you remember when you would do some sort of skill or activity? You would learn to fish or learn to change a car tire, learn how to do a knot. They would give you a badge. And this badge would say, I've learned the skill how to tie a knot. And that badge communicated to all the other people who knew about those badges and who those badges had meaning that this person had acquired a skill and it was endorsed by a third party. And we talked about that endorsement a bit earlier through the use of payment networks like Visa or MasterCard. But that concept of getting a bit of information about yourself is really what we could call a credential. And a credential is some information about something. And we know that, oh actually that credential was given to me by scouts. But, you know, these days I could go online, I could go to AliExpress, I could go to the local mall, and I could get them to make one of those sort of sew-on badges, and I could sew them on, and it would look and feel real, but it would be phony. So if the characteristics of the badge aren't enough to tell whether it's real or not, then we need some other additional bit of information. And, you know, in the past, we've spent a lot of time on physical security to make sure that actually creating copies of things have been very difficult. And probably one of the best examples of that is literal money. So if we think of literal money, dollars, physical bits of paper or plastic, they are a credential, and this credential says, uh, I have some monetary wealth, and this monetary wealth is contained within this credential, which is a $20 bill, and this $20 bill permits the carrier, whoever is holding it, to exchange this credential for goods or services, and whoever receives this credential then has that full right of the wealth that is contained within it and they themselves can spend it on further goods and services. But to make sure that not anyone can generate this credential, there's a lot of energy spent on the physical attributes of the credential, the dollar bill essentially. So they have certain watermarks, they have certain uh, types of plastic or paper that are used. US ones, for instance, use cotton rather than paper, which apparently means they can go through the washing machine a little bit. Now, how do we, as normal people, generate credentials that have the same level of certainty? Because we do a lot of transactions these days, and 
in the past, if you were to say, actually, I want to assert that something is truly correct and accurate, you would write a signature. And a signature has some characteristics about it, such as you can see whether it physically looks the same as other types of signature. You can see whether the pressure that was applied with the pen or the pencil was the same as previous versions of it. You can see whether it was done in a time period or in a certain location that would make sense compared to other types of signature that are produced. But signatures have changed these days. And with the creation of e-signatures, a lot of those characteristics have disappeared. So I'm not sure if you have done an e-signature, but these days they tend to be in some sort of PDF file. You go through and you're asked to make an e-signature. In some cases you're just asked to type your name and it's put into a font that kind of looks handwritten. Or in other place, cases you are asked to move your finger on a screen and replicate a signature. But moving a finger on a screen doesn't demonstrate that you are the same person as last time. And it doesn't demonstrate the pressure that is used by your finger. That doesn't demonstrate that someone else hasn't just plain old copied this. So, actually, an e-signature, in fact the ones where you just type your name, demonstrate really none of the characteristics that you would consider for a signature. The best we can hope for, actually, is that some of them will say, well, we will send you an email. And that email, you'll have to click on it. And by clicking on it, then at least you can demonstrate that we can verify your email address, at most. If we think about credentials, and we talked about the ways that governments and companies spend a lot of time and energy to create a credential that is trusted, that has properties and characteristics that make it authentic. Could you or I create a credential like that? In the past we did so by putting our signature on things. Well, in this new world, yes, yes we can. And the way we achieve that is, ironically, by putting signatures on things. The signatures that we put on things these days would be called digital signatures. And earlier on, I talked a little bit about digital signatures. I talked about mathematicians and other smart people coming up with technological methods that prove that things are what they say they are. And a digital signature is exactly the same. It's basically a fancy long mathematical number and some ways of generating that number that prove that I was the person that generated that number. 
Which means that, well, and by I, I mean the software that I control. So I don't physically make the number. I use some software, which could be my phone, or it could be a wallet, a digital wallet. It could be an app that goes ahead and signs something, digitally signs something. Now, if we were to digitally sign a credential that we have produced, a good example could be where I live. So, I happen to know where I live. I might choose to say I live at 123 John Street. And then, I might digitally sign that bit of information so that it says Waylon promises in a way that you can figure out whether it's true or not. You can determine that he does live on John Street. And I could give that to people. I could give that to my bank. I could give that to my employer. I could give that to a finance company. That concept of this credential that can be checked that can be verified, well, that creates a new type of uh, information, and that new type of information is called, unsurprisingly, a verifiable credential. Now, it's not a physical thing, it's not uh, an object, it's not a credit card or anything like that. It really is just a bit of data, or data, depending on where you're from. It says, here is a fact, and this fact has been um, stated as true or authentic by something. That something could be a person, but equally it could be a sensor, or it could be a machine. So it could be... A luggage machine at an airport that says yes I have seen your luggage and yes I have put it on the carousel and I as the machine have verified that to be true and you can check it to see that I am a correct machine and I haven't changed could be by me as a person as I said with my address it could be from the government saying yes I as Waylon do have permission to drive a car. So this idea of verifiable credentials will become the new foundation for the internet. And in the next Walk and Talk episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the use cases for how these verifiable credentials can improve your life and improve the trust that you have in doing transactions online. In the meantime, I'm at the beach. I'm going to try and find my Crocs. Thank you for listening. I'm Waylon Kenning, your trusted advisor on this topic of Web3 and decentralized identities. I look forward to the next episode of Kenning on Identity Walk and Talk.